All right, welcome to this quick update episode on the Jennifer Dulos case. I know I didn't have a full episode this week, and I'll discuss why on Monday. But there's this update on the Dulos case that I was going to tack on to Monday's episode because it was going to probably be a little update, but instead it got big and intense. So I thought I would get this out as quickly as possible. And also, it's a lot of information, so I didn't want to overshadow next week's cold case. If you have not listened to my full episode on the Jennifer Dulos case, I do recommend it before listening to this one. But the too long didn't listen version is that in May 2019, Jennifer Dulos went missing. In June and again in September, her estranged husband, Fotis Dulos, and his girlfriend, Michelle Traconis, were arrested for tampering with evidence. They made bail both times, but Fotis was reprimanded a few times for letting his ankle monitoring device's battery get too low. Then, on January 7, 2020, Fotis, Michelle, and Fotis's friend-slash-attorney Kent Mawinney were arrested in relation to Jennifer's murder. Her body still has not been found. That catches us up to where we left off on the last episode. So, Fotis asked permission to go to and from work, to and from the grocery store, while he was on house arrest. He was financially in the hole. He needed the money. He also needed to be able to take care of his needs, like getting food. So, the judge granted him permission to go to these very specific places. Then, on Friday, January 17th, 10 days after the arrest, Fotis was heading home in Farmington when he pulled over alongside a memorial some residents had erected in honor of Jennifer. He removed some of the items from the memorial. I have not seen a list of what he took. The next week, the state's attorney filed in court saying that Fotis had violated the terms of his release because he spent three minutes at the memorial, according to his monitor, and it was not an approved stop. In court, Fotis's attorney argued that it wasn't a memorial for Jennifer so much as a way to taunt Fotis, and he wasn't entirely wrong. He had social media posts with people saying as much, But we can't forget that prior to the separation, Jennifer and the kids lived in Farmington. These were their friends and their neighbors. Having a memorial made sense, even though I'm sure the taunting angle was something others considered to be an added benefit. Norm Pattis, Fotis' attorney, did say he shouldn't have stopped and messed with it. Now, the judge didn't really care if it was a taunt or a memorial or whatever. Fotis wasn't supposed to stop there, and he did, and he took things from it. That's the bottom line. So Fotis's house arrest became house confinement, with the judge revoking his permission to leave. The judge referred to Fotis letting the monitor battery get too low, and in his view, Fotis was not complying with the terms of his release. The judge threatened to double Fotis's bond or revoke it entirely if he had one more issue with compliance. Then the next week, which is this week if you're listening right when this comes out, the court called an emergency bond hearing on Tuesday, January 28th for noon. 
It was decided that morning to hold this hearing. Lead attorney Norm Pattis was not even in the state. He was in D.C. on another matter and had to send another attorney in his place. The issue here was the financing of the bond. The surety company guaranteeing FOTUS's bond was concerned that the assets FOTUS put up as collateral weren't enough to cover the $6 million. Insurance regulators had found that three of the six properties FOTUS was using as his collateral didn't have the equity in them that was first believed. Two of them were close to foreclosure, and that included the house FOTUS was currently living in, and another wasn't worth as much as FOTUS had it appraised for. According to the company's motion to be released from backing the bond, it was overvalued by $325,000. Once they added up the equity between all of the properties, it no longer covered the $6 million. And I talked about FOTUS's financial issues in my full episode on the case, which is why I was surprised he could make his bond. But as we're seeing now, he really couldn't cover it. There was a better than decent chance FOTUS's bond was going to be revoked at that hearing and the company was going to be allowed out of it. He would be taken into custody if he could not find other arrangements. If he couldn't arrange a bond with another company, he would no longer have his bond posted. It would have to be someone willing to take on the risk and look at all his properties and what he was offering and determine them to be worth enough. And he really only had a few hours to do this. So the update I had been prepared to give you on Monday was that FOTUS would have had his bail revoked. I was just waiting to hear what happened at the hearing, but then things took a dark turn. Let's walk through the timeline of the morning of Tuesday, January 28th, leading up to the hearing. Lots of media outlets have lots of timelines out there. I found the Hartford Current to be the cleanest reporting and the most in line with what I was seeing as I watched it unfold. It was around nine in the morning that FOTUS's attorney, Norm Pattis, was notified that the bond company was backing out. This left them three hours to figure out alternative funding before the hearing so that FOTUS wouldn't go to jail. A little before 10 a.m., FOTUS called Capital Bail Bonds and asked Mark Matuzic to take over the bond. It's not clear if he called anyone else at this point. We do know his attorney did call someone else. But Capital Bail Bonds was holding FOTUS's other two bonds, the two from the previous evidence tampering charges. Those totaled $1 million. So he's asking Capital Bail Bonds to take on the $6 million one as well. Matuzic told FOTUS he'd have to look into it and call him back. A little after 10.30, Matuzic called Fotis back and he answered the phone, but Matuzic said that Fotis sounded out of breath and, quote, out of it. He told Fotis that taking over the bond would require the court's approval and it wouldn't be that easy, but Fotis told him it was actually all set. It sounds like Matuzic assumed he meant he had found someone else to take it over. The media was camped outside of Fotis's street, waiting to catch a glimpse of him leaving for court. They didn't see him, but they did see a woman arrive around 11.15, 11.20, stay about 10 minutes, and then leave. 
Unnamed sources say that she left to go grocery shopping since Fotis wasn't allowed to leave his house. She has been called his friend, his girlfriend, and his sister by various outlets. This seems a little odd to me timing-wise. Fotis was due in Stamford an hour away from Farmington at noon. Why was he still at his house at 11.30 with this woman not wondering why he didn't leave yet? At this point, I wonder if there are some issues with the timeline, which can happen with early reporting. Perhaps the woman had left earlier. So as people at the courthouse waited, Fotis didn't show. So authorities checked the location of his ankle monitor. It showed he was still at his house, which, like I said, is over an hour away from Stamford. From the courthouse, they called the Farmington police to go check on Fotis at 1154, and the police arrived six minutes later at noon. The Farmington house has five garage bays, and in one of them, the police could see through the window that Fotis's car was in there, and Fotis was sitting in the car and appeared to be in medical distress. Police forced entry into the garage. They found the car running. There are reports that there was a hose from the tailpipe into the car, and it was filled with carbon monoxide fumes. They pulled Fotis from the car, out of the garage, and into the driveway. The local news station had a drone over the house at the time, and everyone watched as they pulled him out and began CPR. Eventually, tents went up to protect the scene from the media's cameras, but we all saw it, and Fotis certainly looked lifeless as they were working on him, and as viewers, from what I've seen on Twitter, and I know my own impressions, it definitely looked like we were seeing a dead body. It's been reported that CPR was performed from anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes, and it went out that Fotis was dead, like official reports. So the family believed that, Jennifer's family in New York, Fotis's family in Greece, and the media started reporting it but he was actually still alive, just barely. An ambulance arrived and Fotis was transported from the scene to Yukon Health, and that's when his attorney came out and told the press that he had a faint pulse. It was a lot of confusion and chaos online with the real-time reporting and within the media about what Fotis's status actually was, but obviously a day later, I can report he was transported from the scene alive. He was in critical condition and he was in intensive care. About 3.30 in the afternoon, being three and a half hours after Fotis was found, he was life-flighted to Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx, where he landed at about four. There they have something called a hyperbaric chamber. This is a big apparatus that increases the air pressure to three times higher than normal, and it allows the lungs to take in more oxygen. The increased oxygen in the blood can help with healing. In the case of carbon monoxide poisoning, it's getting the carbon monoxide to leave faster. The thing with these chambers is that a lot of the ones in the country, including the one in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which was closest to FOTUS, they're not equipped to deal with someone who is on life support. Jacoby, though a little farther away, could handle these severe medical needs. 
though it has not been completely confirmed at this point that Fotis is on life support, just that he is in critical, dire, and grave condition. Fotis received treatment last night, that is Tuesday night, in the hyperbaric chamber. His family from Greece is on their way as I speak to be with him, and the court has cleared it that they can visit him because, of course, he's technically under this house arrest, so there are two guards outside his hospital room. It is still touch and go. It is possible he will not pull through. If he does, it is unknown what kind of brain damage he has suffered. As usual, speculation online is going strong, and some wondered if Fotis staged this, knowing they would go looking for him when he didn't make it to court. If that happened, he would get sent to a psychiatric hospital rather than jail if his bond was revoked. But he very nearly completed suicide here. So if this was a stunt, it was a gross miscalculation on his part. I am more likely to think personally like he is like Josh Powell or Ariel Castro, someone who felt the walls closing in and he decided he would rather be dead than go to prison. The police and Fotis's attorney, Norm Pattis, both said separately that there was going to be a press conference last night, Tuesday night, about what was going on, but neither press conference happened. Ira Judelson is a bail bondsman who came forward saying he was willing to take over all of Fotis's bonds, the two from the tampering charges and the one from the murder charge, totaling $7 million. Judelson has another famous client using his services, and that is Harvey Weinstein. Judelson said he was contacted by Fotis back when he was first looking for bail, but the other company came in first. Judelson did not just come on the scene after the attempted suicide. He's not trying to make a name for himself. Fotis's attorney, Norm Pattis, had already called him the morning of the emergency bail hearing to tell him about the issue and see if he was willing to take over the bond, which he was already considering. Meanwhile, the police are at the Farmington property, keeping it secure. They cannot legally search the house without a search warrant because it doesn't appear there was a crime committed in regards to what happened to Fotis. They are in a holding pattern waiting to see if they will get that search warrant. And if they do get in that house, they can then see if Fotis left a note. Fotis's attorney said that the potential to have his bond revoked was upsetting to him, but he had been strong through this whole process, and that both Pattis and Fotis thought they had a good chance of success at trial, and he did not see the suicide attempt coming. The bond hearing that Fotis was supposed to have on Tuesday, yesterday, just happened as I'm recording this now. It happened at about 2 p.m. Eastern time, and the judge did not revoke Fotis's bond. He did increase it by another 500000 So a rearrest warrant for Fotis was issued. But the whole thing really is on hold because Fotis is in critical condition at the hospital, and he can't exactly sign paperwork for a new bond. It was an interesting bond hearing in the sense that Fotis's attorney has always been a bit of a bulldog, ready to fight whatever in court, and today he seemed just really focused 
on making sure that Fotis's family coming over from Greece would be allowed into his hospital room to visit him. That was his goal in court. He got that. That focus makes me think Fotis really is in a bad way, that the primary goal is to make sure his family gets to see him as soon as possible. And those are the updates I have for you as of right now. If anything develops over the next few days, I will have it on Monday's episode. Remember to subscribe so that you will get a notification when that episode goes live. 